Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 94. Today on the show, we're diving into the mind of big buck killer Ben Rising with the goal of discovering exactly how he's killing the deer he is on such a consistent basis. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sick Gear. And today you'll be glad to hear Dan and I are joined by a terrific guest and someone who likely knows a heck of a lot more about killing big mature whitetails than the two of us do. This guest is Ben Rising. And Ben is a super serious deer hunter, an outfitter, and has been seen on a number of Drury Outdoors TV shows and DVDs over the years. Even more impressive, I think... Ben has killed, I believe it is, eight different Boone and Crockett caliber bucks and who knows how many other dandy mature whitetails. So with all that said, Dan and I are going to step back and absorb as much as we can from Ben today. We're going to do our very best to dig as deep as possible with Ben to understand exactly how he's having this kind of success. And ultimately, our hope is that some of his mojo might rub off on us too. So before we get Ben on the line though, me and Dan have a little bit of catching up to do. Dan, how you doing? I'm doing a-okay. Well, kind of. Did you get my text message pictures? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Right? So my son has a rash right now that looks like chemical burns. And his face was like the night we – the first trip to the ER, we've, he's been there three times now, is it looked like Rocky Balboa. I mean one eye was swollen shut. The other one was almost swollen shut. He had this this swelling on his lip that looked like a marble and it was hanging off his lip. It was nasty. And they're saying it's a virus that they can't do anything about. It just has to run its course. Oh, that is awful. I, I yeah. just I felt so bad just looking at him just right. covered with that rash. He just looked so sad. Yeah. Oh, man, that's got to be really, really tough for, for you guys. I can't yeah. imagine. I hope that it's that tough. clears up soon. Yeah, I think I think he's on his on the way out of it though. I mean, I think the worst is over. He still has a rash on his face and um, back and or on legs and arms, but um, the back is almost cleared up now. So hopefully he's on the he's on the up and up. 
tell you what, you've got a way of making all my issues always look really, <laughs> really <laughs> trivial. <laughs> I was going to come on here today and complain about how I'm so stressed this past week and all this stuff. And now here it is. Dan says, well, my kid's been in the hospital three times and I just can't stack up with that. <laughs> I guess I can't complain that my trail camera batteries died. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're stealing my thunder. Oh man, that's bad though. Yeah, I, I I got nothing compared to that. I uh, all that's new with me and kind of interesting is I had my first deer-related speaking event last week. Oh really? So I did like a seminar for the first time. It was interesting. You know, I, I didn't get to hide behind my computer screen or the podcast mic or the video camera. This was just me in front of people. And uh, I don't know. Have you ever done that, Dan? I don't think you have. Have you? I've never given a speech to people based on deer hunting before. I've yeah. given a, like a company speech or a, a speech to a class, but nothing, nothing like this. What was it for? Yeah, um, it was for a quality deer management co-op meeting here in Michigan. So, gotcha. you know, this is something I, I figured, you know, at some point in my career, I'm probably going to have to start doing these types of things. So I better get started somewhere. And this came up, and it was you know, I figured it'd be a small, safe way to get my toe in the water. Um, so I you know, volunteered my services and thought, hey, I'll go up there and, and talk for a little bit. So it was cool. There was probably about 50 people, um, so not a huge audience, but enough that I, uh, you know, if I did something stupid, it would have been embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was nervous. I'll be honest with you, I was I was nervous because I like like you, I've done a lot of like you know, I've done a lot of speaking in front of people for my old job, you know, sales pitches and speeches and different things like that, but uh, not about uh, you know not in my new career yet. So that was a new thing. Did you picture the crowd naked? Uh, no, I did not because okay. it was primarily older gentlemen. So okay. <laughs> it wouldn't have been all that interesting for me. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> no, no, no naked, uh, no naked ideas. Just, uh, I, I did a lot of, did a lot of prep, tried to make sure I knew what I was talking about. And I think, you know, from what I heard, I think it went well. So I didn't, I didn't have any mess ups where I embarrassed myself. I didn't get booed off the stage. So, uh, that was, bomb. that was a success as far as I'm concerned. So I had that going on, but man, that kind of thing, it was stressful. Like it, it took me out of my, like out of my workflow for like two, three days. I couldn't focus on anything else. Cause I was thinking about that. And then yeah. this week I've had like some other things going on that have just got me like, I don't know, just not able to focus on like the work I need to get done. I'm like stressing about these like different business opportunities or possible new projects or possible partnerships and all this kind of stuff. And it's, it's great stuff, but I'm just like overthinking it and like worrying about if I do this, I can't do that. And if I can't do that, will that mean this? And should I do this? Should I not do that? Where am I going? What am I doing? So there's like been a lot of just like in my head, like what I'm, where, where are we taking this thing in, in the future? So good problems to have, I guess, but I've just been like in a funk kind of because of it. Um, well, so, I tell you I what's going to cure that for you is your shed hunting trip to Ohio this weekend. That is true. I hope I hope that will help. I think it should help. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Although the one bummer is that as of right now, it looks like we're going to have rain every day. I'm going to be down there. Right. Same same here in Iowa. Yeah. So it's going to be a wet shed rally weekend. But you're still going to go out, right? I think so. I'm going to uh, grab my frog talk. <laughs> <laughs> Best rain jacket ever. <laughs> my my uh, frog tog rain jacket and, with, uh, with hit, your plastic bag. We're gonna bring the plastic bag to wear underneath it too. That's right. 
Oh my gosh. I guess the worst, the, you know, if it gets too bad, I could just drive around and find them. <laughs> you could. We actually did that a little bit when I was in Iowa. Me and Corey drove around in one of the fields in this truck. We're like, hey, we could get used to this. <laughs> yeah. That'd be nice. I was, I was at my buddy's house, right? And I took down a trail camera and my last tree stand that I had to take down for the year. And we're driving back into town and I, I took the this different way for some reason. And I see something out in this like CRP that looked like it had laid, the CRP had laid down. And I look at him like, oh, that can't be. So I back up and there's, there's two kids and a mom playing out in this front yard. Um, so I back up and the mom instantly goes into like creeper mode where she's like, who is that? And what are they doing? <laughs> so I back up, I look at it even closer. I'm just like, it's like a hundred yards off the road. So I pull into the driveway and I, I go up to this lady. I'm like, okay, I'm sorry for bothering you, but there's something over there that looks like a deer antler shed. Do you guys shed hunt or hunt at all? And they're like, no, I go, do you mind if I go up and grab it? If, if it is in fact a shed. So I grab it and it's like one of the top 10 biggest sheds I've ever found. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. That looked like an awesome shed. I saw the picture. That was a sweet piece of bone. Yeah. It's uh it's not bad. It was a, I'm jacked. Cause I'm just, you know, I would love to have put in hours and hours of walking to find it, but Hey, sometimes you just got to, you know, take what you can get. I'd rather be lucky than good. Right. That's right. How did you, it looked like, like 65 inches or bigger, um, would you say maybe? I, I, I'd put her closer, I'd probably put it closer to 60. Okay. I uh, mean, the G4 on it is not that big. Gotcha. I, I guess, yeah, it's kind of, kind of crab clawed, I guess, if I remember yeah. right. Yeah. Yep. Heck, that's still a nice piece of bone. I'll measure it and then I'll, I'll let you know. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear. <laughs> that's awesome, man. That's cool. That's that's a good sign for the next big shed hunting trip, right? Hopefully. Right. Hopefully. Hopefully they're not all – I mean there's been no snow this year, so hopefully they're not all chewed up by the time that, that we find them. Yeah, that is the one concern I've been having too. It's getting a little bit late, and if they've been on the ground a lot, there could be could be some issues, but you just never know. So, that's right. Well, I'm excited for, for next week's podcast. Hopefully we'll both have some good stories to share on that front and – uh Man, I'll, I'm excited to find out if a couple of my bucks in Ohio made it. I'm really excited for that because I'll be checking the cameras, checking the sheds. So we should have we should have some answers by next week, some big answers. Well, okay, so I, I talked to you about this just a little bit. Now, it's episode 94, right? This one, this one is episode 94. Yes. Okay, that means episode 100 is coming very soon. And... And I'm a biggest, I'm a, you know, I'm a fan as much as the next guy, the listeners. So I want to know, are we going to do something big for the hundredth show? I mean, do, do we got a contest or do we have like fireworks or something like that? I can tell you this. We do not have fireworks, but we do have some very cool things planned. I, I can't share specifically what those things are yet. I want to kind of keep it under wraps for a little bit longer, but we are going to make sure episode 100 is one to remember. We're going to do some cool stuff, so definitely stay tuned for that. I think when I looked at the calendar, that's going to be sometime in April, uh, mid-April, if I remember correctly. So, so yeah, stay tuned. Episode 100 is coming, and we're going to do it up big. So it's uh, I'm excited about it too, for sure. Perfect. So 
so with that little tease out of the way, Dan, I think uh, I think we do need to get Ben on the line. It is time for our call with Mr. Rising. So let's uh, let's take a pause here briefly for a word from our partners at Sika Gear, and then we will give Ben a call. All right, so as we do every week, we're talking to Sitka product category leader, Dennis Zuck. And today, I want to ask Dennis a little bit about Sitka's hometown, Bozeman, Montana. Now, I'm a huge fan of Montana, but when I think of big sky country, my mind jumps to elk and mountains, not necessarily whitetails. So, Dennis, do you guys have any whitetails out there to test this gear on? Yeah, and it's kind of funny because you absolutely, your mind goes right to the elk, which a lot of the folks here go right to the elk too. But, you know, if you think about the Milk River or some of the things you've seen on outdoor television, you know, that's all in Montana. You know, and I'll, and I'll tell you, there's there's a ton of whitetail deer in Montana, and there's some great hunting here for for them. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting. You know, I tell people all the time, if you want to go shoot, if you're really comfortable, want to shoot a 135, you know, there's all kinds of 135 type of animals in Montana. You'll see more of those than you will see in lots of other parts of the country. So you absolutely can test, test product here for whitetail. You can create some really good gear. Um, that's why we moved it here. We moved it somewhere where we could we could go out and beat up stuff for the whitetailer, but we could beat up stuff for the elk guy, or we could, you know, go out and, you know, test our next waterfowl idea. So, you know, this place is exactly where you want to be if you're going to try to build clothing systems for the hunting community, whitetail included. So then that leads me to my next question, which is, are you able to ever get any work done during the hunting season when there's so many opportunities out there? Yeah, well, you know that I can work from home philosophy. Well, I can work from the field too. So the the great thing is, is you know I can uh, I can go out test some product, and I might answer an email on my phone once in a while. You know, a lot of us say we don't do it, but we all know we probably do. So we work a lot from the field. We work a lot from the office. Um, it's the game we play. It's the world we live in. Yeah, I am uh, definitely guilty of similar work habits such as that during the hunting season. So so I can totally relate. Nothing wrong with working from the field. So if you'd like to learn more about Sitka Gear and the whitetail products they're putting out there, you can visit SitkaGear.com. And now let's get back to the show and give Ben Rising a call. All right, with us now on the line is Ben Rising. Welcome to the show, Ben. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're we're thrilled to have you, especially given the fact that for the past like 30 minutes we've been trying to have this interview <laughs> and we've had some technical difficulties. So, so thank you Ben for sticking it out with us. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. It uh it's going to be I think an interesting conversation. I've been looking forward to chatting with you um about all sorts of deer hunting related things for a while now. So, so I'm glad we're able to make this happen and just before you got on the line, Ben, I gave our listeners a really brief introduction to who you are. But for those who aren't familiar, can you give us a little bit more background as to you know what you've been doing in the whitetail hunting world over past years and, and now what you're up to today? Okay, yeah, well, uh, clear back in 2001, I started filming for Drury Outdoors. Um, you know, filmed for them till just this last, oh, I think it was 2000. 13 was my last season actually filming under a jury contract. Um, and now I'm, um, doing my own web show going to be starting here this year and it's called whitetail edge. Um, and I've had an outfitting business for the last five years called wicked Ridge outfitters in Kilbuck, Ohio. Um, so I've 
And I'm a logger by trade, by standing timber for a local sawmill. And I logged for 20-some years cutting timber every day. And just in the last two years, I've kind of got off the chainsaw a little more and doing more of the legwork in the woods and estimating timber and, you know, buying jobs. So I'm, I live in the woods, basically, is what you could say. It's not a bad way to live. <laughs> Seems like from, from everything I've seen, you're, you are living the whitetail life. Seeing, uh, seeing whether it be, you know, scouting, shed hunting, scouting in the summer, it seems like you're doing something related to deer most of the year. Would you say that's true? Oh, yeah. Yep, for sure. Um, and I feel that that's, you know, my dad started me trapping years ago when I was just a little boy. My dad was a big predator caller and trapper. He wasn't a real big deer hunter, but, you know, he knew animal habits and he knew things like that. And I think that played a huge part in making me into a good hunter when I developed the, the bug to want to deer hunt. You know, I started bow hunting when I was 13 and, um, obviously a big learning curve, not having anybody in my family that was a bow hunter. But by the time I was, you know, early twenties, I'd really started to get a good grasp on it, you know? So, yeah. So when, when did I think you being in the woods helped? Yeah. Sorry. I was just going to ask, when did you, make the switch and maybe it was an evolution or a switch. When did you move from just hunting deer to targeting a certain type of deer or age or size or something like that? When did that happen for you? Well, I guess you'd say it happened with my first encounter with a real, you know, Boone and Crockett size animal. And, you know, that would have been the, and it's funny because the very first year that Drury's contracted me to film for them, I actually killed my very first booner. My very first deer on film was a 184-inch nine-point deer. Um, and, you know, I had killed some good deer up until that point, but never a 180-class you know, type deer. Um, but just hunting that deer that year on 50 acres of land against other people that were trying to hunt the same deer, and, you know, that deer, I killed him on October 23rd, but that deer taught me so much. I watched him in the summer some and filmed him and, you know, um, and I just learned a lot about that deer and, you know, how different they were. And, you know, it just really gave me the bug and I call it booneritis. It's a disease, I call it. <laughs> and, uh, it just, you know, I wrote an article a few years ago called booneritis, you know, and it just depicts the, you know, once that gets in your blood, when you kill a deer like that, or you get to hunt deer of that size, just nothing else to do, at least for me. You know, I mean, I enjoy killing big deer out of state. You know, I mean, like, obviously, you know, if I go out of state away from home, you know, my standards are different if I only have five days to hunt. You know, a mature buck is a mature buck. You know, a good four-and-a-half, five-and-a-half-year-old deer, even if it's, you know, 140-class deer, is still a great deer to kill in four or five days, you know, and that's a very smart animal to kill. But uh, if I have the time to pick out a very large animal, you know, and choose from different farms and trail cameras, and, you know, and that's why I kind of like to get multiple farms, even out of state, because I try to do my homework and I try to pick the biggest deer I can find to kill. You know, and some people say, well, you're just a horn hunter. Well, you know, I've killed so many deer in my life that I just don't get anything out of just shooting a regular buck anymore. I mean, my challenge is witting my, putting my wits against deer of that nature. You know, I still get off on shooting does. I love it you know, and taking my boys and shooting young deer, but shooting really big bucks is the thing that turns me. Yeah, definitely. Like, like you said, they're, 
there's something, at least for me, it's not even necessarily just, you know, how big the antlers are just for the sake of the antlers, but also by the fact that a deer with antlers like that is so rare, so smart. Yeah. So, you know, those types of animals just aren't, there's not many of them out there. And the ones that are have had to be extremely smart to get to that point. So because of that right there, it's so much more of a challenge in and of itself. Um, yeah, it's hard. You're running 5% of the whitetail population. Exactly. And it, it forces you to do a lot of things differently, that's for sure. So since that first Boone and Crockett buck, uh, how many how many other Boone and Crockett deer have you shot? Last I heard, I think, was eight. Is that accurate or has it changed? Yeah. Yeah, I've shot eight Booners, you know, in the last, since 2002. Wow. And uh, the biggest was the 180 or bigger than that? Uh, 204. Wow. So Now these are gross scores, you know. Right, right. But I've killed uh, 176, 180, and two eights. Um, I don't have to look at them here, but yeah, 180 and two eights, um, a 184, a 193. Um, last year I killed a 174 and a 183. Um, seems like I'm missing one there somewhere, but oh, and, a, and another 180. Wow. So I want to get into how you actually killed all these deer, but before that, I, I, I'm just thinking as you're listing off all these numbers and all these deer, is there any one of those bucks that you've killed that stands above the rest from like a memory or an experience standpoint, or is it, you know, or are they all great in and of themselves? Well, the deer I killed last year, um, I called him high and tight um, for a couple of years. Um, He's, you know, he sticks in my memory really good, but I still think that, you know, the 204 was a special deer, but my very first being the 184-inch nine-pointer is just hard to beat. I mean, he's just a, his typical frame is ginormous, and to have nine points and to gross score that many inches of antler kind of gives you a depiction of the size of rack that he carried on his head, um, you know, and oh, yeah. just the, the experience I had with, hunting that deer then harvesting him and you know it was just uh it, it was epic i mean it's just i've never had a reaction like that in my life you know to killing a deer i mean i've always get excited but um you know i, I literally thought i was going to faint after i pulled it off you know <laughs> we, but uh, uh, it's weird because i you know i've had a lot of guys sit in the tree with me and film and you know, I've killed, filmed and killed numerous bucks, you know, from, you know, 130-inch deer up to Booner class, you know, with a bow. And, you know, everybody just says that the one thing that they notice about me is that, you know, like ice in my veins, I just don't get rattled, you know, and I just concentrate on what I'm doing, Um, you know, to, you know, I the way I look at it, I just work so hard to get to that point and put myself in that position that that is not the time to get nervous and have a meltdown. Yeah. You know, it's it, the killer instinct. They say, man, it's you interesting. Know, uh, it's interesting. You bring that up. Cause literally just last week, our episode was all about this very topic of the killer instinct and how you handle the moment of truth. Um, and so I'm curious, and one of the things we were talking about is, are some people just born with it, or is it something you acquire with experience after killing so many deer or having encounters with so many mature bucks or anything like that? You know, Have you always had that killer instinct, that, that ice in your veins, or is this something that has grown over time? Yeah, well, you know, I obviously think the more you're around 
the type of animals you're trying to hunt, the more comfortable you get, you learn things. But I also credit a lot to being at such a young age, you know, um, being a trapper and my dad hunting and, you know, you had to harvest the animals and dispatch them. So the, I guess you'd so to speak, taking an animal's life was instilled into me at a very young age, you know? Um, and I, I think, and just, you know, I mean, I, I just, but I also think that you're born with it. You know, I was catching red fox and coyotes at the age of 13 years old, you know, and I don't know if you know much about trapping, but red fox are very smart. They're very cagey to scent. You know, they'll flip your traps. They'll turn around and they'll take a dump on your traps if they smell human scent. So my dad taught me so much at that young age about things like that, that, you know, I mean, I literally was hated by adult men in our community that were trappers that couldn't catch fox. And I was catching, you know, 20 a year. And um, so I do think that it's just a natural, you know, everybody has a gift, you know, and I, I honestly believe that this lifestyle is my God-given talent, you know. Yeah. Um, but I do think that people can overcome nerves and the ability to, you know, settle in and get used to, you know, putting themselves in those positions and having an animal of that caliber in front of them and keeping their cool, you yeah. know. Um, but I'll tell you a funny little saying that my buddy Mark Dury always said, and this is funny, after I went out there one time and I was filming with him turkey hunting and we had a, a guy in camp that he was filming and uh, this guy had missed about three turkeys that day already and after or two already in the morning and then after the third one Mark Dury got up and he booted the decoy across the woods <laughs> and he'd come over to me and he says look Ben he goes this is how it is he goes some people are killers or he goes, some people are hunters. Some people like to hunt and then there's killers. And he goes, this guy, he just likes to hunt. And he got so, and he walked right to the truck. <laughs> yeah. He takes it personal, you know? I mean, uh, I mean, obviously he wasn't mad at the guy. It was just, he was mad at the situation, yeah. you know, because he's just not used to that. You know, he's not used to having failed attempts and, you know, but I think that's the truth. There's some people that are out there just because they want to be out there. They're enjoying you know, and then there's that type of people like Don Kiske, Jay Gregory, myself, you know, Waddell. I mean, you can drop those guys anywhere in any situation, and they're going to drop the hammer, and it's going to count. You know, everybody makes a bad shot. But, you know, a lot of these so-called, what I call them, computer and Facebook hunters, they judge all of us because they think, that well, if I had the areas to hunt that these guys do or hunt those farms that they have, we could kill these same deer. But, you know, that's not really the truth. I mean, there is a big separation in, you know, they all had to start somewhere and work their way to the point that they're at now. And part of the reason they're at where they're at now is because they can pull it off. Yeah. You know, in crunch time, they make it happen. So that brings up an interesting... Uh, Sorry, go ahead, Dan. Let's elaborate on that for a moment um, and talk about the the places that you are hunting. Um, were all of these booners killed in Ohio and were they on... Uh, public or private ground you know is that ground um basically maintenanced for killing big deer yeah well so like um my very first one you know was uh just a piece of land i got permission to hunt on and the farmer's family hunted there too um you know and it wasn't a very big tract of land so that deer was being hunted um most of these deer that i've killed have either been on say i might acquire a lease 
Um, but you know, none of the leases are big enough that you can control the deer and you can control the neighbors. You know, everybody hunts around me. Um, and you know, I literally have to, you know, I hate it when people even find out where I'm hunting because if they find out that I've leased a farm or I got permission to hunt a farm, they think there's 25 Boone and Crockett deer living on it, you know? (laughs) And so instantly you get pressure around you even harder than what you had originally. But I've walked into many farms over the years and killed the biggest deer on the farm the first year I've had had access to it um you know and it's and i'm talking even pressured deer you know i mean i the one deer i killed um he lived on public land i didn't kill him right on public land but it was really close you know i mean within 50 yards so well you know it's just you know and, and honestly a lot of those guys are the same way i mean i've watched michael waddell i've been with mark Dury, you know you can drop those guys anywhere and they're going to, they're going to make it happen because that's just, you know, it's in their blood. I mean, it's just what they were born to do and they know how to do it. They know how to read deer and sign and land. And, you know, there's so many factors to it that, you know, um, people overlook, you know, and I think in today's world, because there is so much TV and so much hype about killing deer and they, you know, and they see a lot of the the shows, you know, where everybody's killing these big deer. Um, I don't think they realize the work that's gone into that 30 minute TV show to watch that happen. Right. You know, even though they may be hunting, you know, like, you know, there's no doubt. And this is nothing against people like Lee and Tiffany and, you know, Mark and Terry and guys like that, that have large tracts of land, you know, I mean, they've worked their butts off to get to that point and have those, but those deer are still big deer and they still act like big deer. You know, they may be a little less pressured, so they're more apt to move when things are good, but, um, they're still not stupid, you know? And, uh, you know, it's just a big misconception, I think, but you know, people today, I don't think they, I think they think they're just going to go out, dump some corn on the ground and a 180 inch deer is going to walk in and they're going to shoot it. (laughs) Right. You know, it doesn't it just don't happen that way. It doesn't, does it? <laughs> so having having known a lot of these different guys you've mentioned and yourself having had a lot of success, if you had to if you had to kind of sum it down to a couple core concepts, is there anything that all of these really successful hunters that you know have in common or that they do differently than your average, you know, dump a pile of corn and hope for a big buck to sh- to show up? Is there something consistent yeah. between all these guys that they do differently? Intrusion you know, pressure is the number one factor in killing a large deer. Once he knows he's being hunted, um, it's a totally different game. You know, you, I'd say 85% of the booners on my wall and big deer, I'm talking, you know, 40 plus type deer. I've killed them within two or three times of sitting on them. And, you know, a couple of them the first time. So I think that you you really diminish your chances as you start to hunt those deer. You know, they start figuring you out, and deer have zones, you know, and, and I can get into more of that in a little bit if you want. But intrusion factor is key. You know, exiting and entering your stand setups is a major factor in, in staying undetected and hunting the right winds, obviously. Um, you know, putting yourself in those positions where those deer are traveling, you know. Um, and I think every deer has a weakness and you have to pinpoint, you have to locate that weakness somehow, either by visual observation, by running trail cameras in certain areas, you know, and doing it right. 
and um, just knowing what the the pressure of the people hunting the same farm you're hunting is doing to the deer. Yeah, so so let's talk about that weaknesses, that weakness aspect. You mentioned a, a couple of high-level ways you might be able to go about doing that. Uh, does that start now? Do you start uh, trying to identify weaknesses in a deer or learning about a deer during the spring, or is this something that happens you know during the season? Well, I mean, if you've had a prior relationship with a buck from the fall before and you didn't harvest it, well, yeah, you could maybe learn some things right now from it. Um, by trying to find, you know, obviously where he shed his antlers, where he was feeding late season or after season, um, maybe dig a little farther into his core and find out exactly where he's bedding if you can. You know, a lot of – see, and I think that's where a lot of people struggle. They can't identify those things, um, you know, and it's it's woodsmanship, you know, that sets a lot of people apart from the average hunter, you know, and um, – it's just something that, again, you know, either you can recognize it or you, you don't, you know, and it's it's just hard to say. It's hard to explain that to people, you know. Yeah. And uh, But digging in this time of year can't help you, but I usually find that weakness once I locate the deer I want to hunt. You know, if it's a new deer, a new farm, or, you know, you know, you just – you can either run it. You can either figure that out by trail cameras or where the food sources are, or you know a glitch in the land that may stick out and say, you know, that is the weakness. That is, he has to walk through that spot to get there. You know, um, and that's kind of how I killed the big buck I killed this year that just showed on Bone Collector. Um, you know, there was a little pinch between the creek and the corner of a field. He wasn't going to want to expose himself. Yeah, the night before I watched him farther down the creek with a doe, but I knew at some point he was going to walk that trail in that natural pinch, and he did the next morning, and I shot him second time in. Hmm. Um, at eight forty in the morning on October twenty seventh, you know, so it's just you know, just being able to identify those those things about the farms you're hunting, you know. So, so how about you know? Let's let's say a hypothetical situation. If if I could pick you up and drop you off at a new farm, uh, maybe you know spring or summertime, you you can you can choose. Can you can you walk me through how you would go about starting to hunt there, learning about that property? You know, how would you go about dissecting, learning a property, putting together a strategy? If I if I just dropped you on a random hundred acres, maybe, and said, Ben, go kill the biggest buck here. What would you do? Mm-hmm. Well. First thing I'm going to do is identify any type of food source, you know, that the deer could be using because a deer can't live if he can't eat and he's not going to be there if there's nothing to eat. Um, you know, now he may live on the farm because you have a lot of cover and he'll walk the food, but you have to know where the food is. And then you find the cover, you find where the deer is going to bed. Um, and then it's pretty much, you piece it together from there. I mean, those two things are the main factor in killing a big deer. I mean, food and security. Um, obviously, the does come into play at a point in time, but a lot of my bucks, I have killed them before they really start ramping in the rut, or I kill them late season. You know, the rut is my least favorite time to hunt a big deer. I mean, it's fun and it's action-packed, but the deer is so unpredictable at that point that, you know, they're very hard to pinpoint. So if I do want to hunt rut and try to kill a very large buck, I like to hunt post rut. 
because that's when the last ones are really looking, the last real giants are looking for hot doves, you know, and they're a little more predictable at that point. But yeah, I mean like getting dropped off, you know, I want to identify the food sources. I want to know if there's any stands on the property lines where the hunters are, you know, pressuring my property lines or if there's hunters on the same farm, where are they hunting at? What are they doing? How are they getting in there to those spots? And, you know, then I think of it from a deer standpoint, you know, what is that deer encountering during hunting season? You know, I, I just try to put myself in that position and think, all right, if I'm a buck and I'm feeding here and I know this is the thickest area on the farm or this is a doe bedding area, this is a buck bedding area where I can, you know, bet on this point and look down this ravine, watch my backside, get the wind, hit me in the face. Then I hear Joe Hunter pull in on his quad or I hear him shut the gate or banging around climbing a tree. You know, those are all the things that go through my mind, and I don't even think about it, you know, myself. I'm not even thinking that I'm thinking it. I'm just thinking it, you know, to where some people, I think, you know, need, they need to make a list of these things and, and pick their farms apart, you know. Right, right. It, it becomes intuition probably after you've done it so many times, right? Yeah, and I mean, you know, you you have to find those terrain features that, you know, in, in good flat ground, you know, it's a little tougher, you know, because you don't have a lot of funnels. You don't have a lot of, you know, natural forces to move a deer, you know, through a certain part of the hillside or, you know, so you, you know, you find little corners or tree lines that connect a block of woods to another block of woods or CRP grass to, you know, um, there's always something that you can find that depicts how the deer want to move. Yeah. So, so I want to rewind a little bit. I want to take you back to the summer. Let's say it's the summer before you're going to actually start hunting there. Do you do a lot of actual glassing and scouting by from the road or from the property at all during the summer to try to figure out, you know, what deer are there or anything like that? Or is that something you wait till the season happens? No, I do. I mean, I do a lot of that if I can, you know, if the farm permits it for sure, you know, I want to spend a little time doing that. Um, I don't spend as much time as I used to doing that. You know, I used to really spend tons of time watching, you know, fields and things like that. But in today's world, if somebody sees me parked somewhere, you know, glass in a field or, you know, it just really makes my life harder, you know? Um, so it, it hunting has become, I don't know how you say it, but it's not, it doesn't seem like it's so much just an enjoyable sport camaraderie wise with your buddies anymore you know it's become this like i don't know this jealousy i've never seen anything in my life that has the jealousy that killing a big deer does and it's sad you know yeah um but it disappears that you know somebody sees you somewhere then they think and they know and then things start happening and you know but uh that's another story but yeah i mean definitely if you can watch deer and you have the ground that you can do it on and do it safely from a distance where you're not intruding on those deer it's a great way to find a weakness in a buck because you'll notice a lot of times deer will enter fields and food sources on different winds and different spots and those are key things to notice for an early season hunt so so that behavior that you're seeing in the summer is that applicable actually during the hunting i know you just mentioned early season hunting so is that is that kind of data that you store that you just apply to the first couple hunts of the year or is that somehow useful later you know in later in october or november or december yeah no i think you can use it a lot i mean as long as you know if they're using that food source or those trails you know or leaving that bedding area 
you know, there's certain ways that those deer are going to do it, you know, and, um, you know, Don Higgins, I don't I'm sure you've heard of him. Yep. He wrote a book, you know, and one thing that I noticed that he wrote in his book years ago, I read and, you know, and I agree with it totally. I just never stated it like he did. He wrote a thing about, you know, and I think he, he stated it the best for people to understand. A lot of times to hunt these big deer, you have to hunt a wind that is almost wrong for you and the deer almost it thinks it's right. You know what I mean? It's like it's right on that fine line of being wrong, but yet it's just good enough. Yeah. You know? And um, But not always. I mean, you know, it doesn't always work that way, but I have noticed that, you know, deer will move better, you know, on a wind that they definitely feel is in their favor, you know, for sure, of go heading to the area they want to be. Yeah. Do, do, you, do you typically see that you're finding most of these mature bucks moving with – the wind in their face or quartering. Um, you know, I, I feel like I've talked to, we've talked to so many different people about this and it seems like everyone has, everyone kind of agrees that yes, a mature buck likes to use the wind, but there's lots of varying answers as to how they use it. Have you seen one or the other be the most common from your experience? Well, so like in his natural setting, early season, you know, they're definitely going to use the wind, you know, to their best advantage, you know, checking that food source before they come in. But, you know, I've read articles where these guys talk about these deer use the inner buck trails and, you know, circle a, a food source before they enter it. And I think that's a bunch of hogwash. I mean, I've never once seen a deer do that unless he was so pressured and scared to death that that is the only time. But that then if that's the point, he ain't even going to hit that food source till dark. Right. You know what I mean? So I think people give him too much credit sometimes, you know, if a deer is not on edge and he's, you know, now I'm not going to say that I don't think you have to slide into the timber a little bit and catch him in a staging area before he hits the food. But, you know, and when they're in those areas, they're a lot less, the closer they get to the food or the opening, the more nervous they're going to get and the more alert they're going to get, you know. But if you go too far into the woods too much, you're going to bump them out and you, you're very limited on how many times you can hunt a staging area. Yeah. So, so elaborate a little bit on that for your early season hunts. So you, you've identified, right, there's a buck here where they're scouting, you know, he's coming in and out of a food source. Do you typically, is that how you typically like to approach that early season couple hunts? Is, is that finding that staging area or do you use any other information to figure out what you're going to do? Yeah. Well, I mean, if it's, if I've got a big buck peg that I think I can kill early, you know, that's exactly how I try to kill him. I try to figure, you know, I, I definitely figure out where he's bedded, um, and I figure out where he's going. And then you can only hunt those trails, you know, on the right type of winds where you're not going to bust all the other deer also, you know, and give your location up, and you got to hunt them on the right days. And, you know, you don't go in there when it's 95 degrees on opening day, no matter how bad you want to, even if it's the right wind. You know what I mean? Um little factors like that is what depicts your success rate of a mature deer moving in daylight hours to get somewhere. Yeah. We, we, we like to, I, I personally geek out about that. You just mentioned like the little factors that get a mature buck on his feet and all the different things, whether it be weather related or precipitation or anything like that. Are there any specific things that you really pay attention to that when you see happen, you know that you have to be in the woods, you know, like a cold front or anything like that? Are there some things you really key in on? 
Yeah, well, I like high pressure. You know, I, I truly believe, you know, I've killed a lot of deer on a cold front, but I see way more deer activity, high pressure after a front. You know, the deer just really ramp up. And one thing I've noticed, too, is stagnant, any kind of consistent weather pattern sucks for deer, whether it is cold or whether it's heat, you know, or constant rain or, you know, constant dry. Any switch up in any of that stagnant weather pattern makes deer move, in my mind. Um, you know, obviously, the colder it is in a longer period, the, the more they got to go to food. So that is a weakness, you know, but you know, I, the morning times hunting, you know, when it's like that is very fruitless in my mind, you know, we, in my outfitting business and, you know, muzzleloader season and late bow hunts, we won't even hunt mornings unless we have a deer peg that we know exactly how he's doing, what he's doing. And he may be a morning type deer, you know, and we can get in and catch him coming back to bed. But most of the times they're already back, you know, and laying. You mentioned, you mentioned trying to find that pattern between the bedding area and the food source. So how are you, how are you finding that, that bedding area? Well, I guess, what are you looking for? And are you using trail cameras to help you, help you scout? Yeah. Well, I don't really use trail cameras in the woods very often. Um, you know, and I think that's where a lot of people make a big mistake. You know, they get a, they get a farm and they go blowing in the woods and they find all these awesome trails and, you know, they want to check out this creek crossing or they want to, you know, put a camera facing this trail 7,500 yards in the woods, you know. Um, I'm an edge guy, you know, and that's why my web show is called Whitetail Edge because I like to stay, you know, on the fringes and wait for the deer to come to me as much as I can. You know, I will slip in the timber at the right times, you know, like those staging areas and things like that. But all my cameras, you know, are pretty much on the edge. And I use that information because, like I said, deer have zones, I feel. And I think once you cross, you know, they're used to human activity in this pretty much in the whole United States being in fields, farmers, you know, anything like that, an open area, you know, roads, trails, you know, they're used to encountering some sort of human scent in those spots. Well, you know, you start leaving those spots, you know, like a lot of my trail cameras, I'll check on some of these farms or places I have permission. I'll check, I'll drive my truck right to them, you know, and I'll try to have areas where I can drive my truck right around these farms to get to these spots to check them you know, even scrapes. I mean, I'll drive right up to a big old hog scrape on the edge of the field. If, you know, if I can, if I'm permitted to do it and I'm not tearing up the farmer's field and it works out, you know, um, I'll drive my truck right up to it, hop out and jump right back in it because they're used to, that doesn't bother them. It really doesn't, you know, it's the sneaking in there and walking around and, you know, it's what alerts those deer that something's not right. You know, um, so I try to run my cameras on scrapes on the edge of the food sources, you know, anywhere where I can check them that that zone isn't being crossed, that these deer are so alerted that, and they get used to you being in those spots when you check those cameras every two weeks or, you know, a week or however you're, this depends on how aggressive you're trying to hunt at the time. They somewhat, I think they get a comfort level with it. But if you start blowing into the timber and you cross that zone, 
it's over. I mean, I'm not going to say it's completely over. It's just they're on guard, and they know then that this isn't right. You know, and if they keep smelling that, you doing that, then eventually they'll either, I think they'll either leave or they'll just relocate or they're just going to go nocturnal on you. Yeah. Is there a typical frequency for checking those cameras that you like to stick to? I know you mentioned that, you know, everyone's got their own level of aggression. What's your level that you like to stick to? Well, like when, if, if you're hunting a food source that's active, you know, and the deer are really hitting it and you're trying to catch a pre-rut buck, you know, maybe coming to that food source to check those does, you know, how I first figure that out is if he's going to hit that food source in daylight, it's the scrapes. You know, if they start hitting those scrapes, them big dominant bucks, you'll notice too that a lot of times your smaller bucks or if there's other mature bucks in the area, a lot of those other mature bucks will start disappearing off your cameras and it gets down to one really big deer, you know, and then you, you start figuring out which buck is the dominant buck in that area because, you know, they'll all hit those primary scrapes and spots, but, you know, each dominant buck in my mind has his core area. And he starts patrolling that area as it gets closer to the pre-rut. And he starts brooting out those other bucks out of that area. And you'll start noticing on your camera, some of them other bucks aren't going to show up there very often because they know they're going to get their butt kicked or they're going to have a confrontation, you know. Um, and so when you start catching that buck cruising his area and hitting them scrapes closer to daylight, you know, or closer, you know, getting to the food source before it gets dark, that's a prime time. And, you know, when it's starting to get to that pre-rut, sometimes you got to check those cameras and those edges to where you can get in and out, you know, undetected. You can check them every three, four days if you need to, but you got to make sure the wind is right and you're not blowing your wind down into the timber and blowing the deer out of their bedding areas. Yeah. Yeah. See, and that's another thing people don't, they throw caution to the wind, you know, when it's just checking cameras, they don't think about it. Right, the, the deer know, does, and the deer just, is another difference, right? Yeah, I mean they if they're down in the woods, fifty, seventy, five hundred yards, better than a thicket off that field, you know, and they smell you up there every three, four days. They don't like that, you know. So I try to do it when the wind is right, or if it's nasty weather, or you know, windy, rainy. You know, I'll move sets in the same kind of conditions if I need to move on a deer. And I also like I don't shower. I, and it starts for me in July, normally, you know, I start going to scentless soap, you know, everything's washed scentless for me all the time. Um, just my regular work clothes, street clothes, everything. I don't wear colognes, nothing. And that's just how I live my life, you know, up until, you know, about this time of year, I give my wife at least a couple months of smelly good, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Nice, nice. Can can you elaborate a little more on what your your full scent control kind of regimen is in addition to that, everything you do? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think just being clean, you know, just being clean. I don't eat a lot of stinky foods, you know, when it comes time. You know, I don't eat a lot of onions. I stay away from stuff like that, you know. But uh, just keeping your clothes clean and, you know, I don't really feel that you always have to have you know, there's a lot of good clothing lines out there, you know, and um, I've used them all in the past. And, you know, I mean, obviously for our Whitetail Edge show, you know, we've getting sponsors. And, you know, we have different people that are, you know, but I think there's so many good products out there. But I think the number one factor is keeping your clothes clean. You know, you're not pumping gas. You're not wearing the same boots, jumping into Dairy Queen and that you're going to walk into the stand with, you know. Um, I just feel that that's, 
you know, that's imperative is just trying to be as clean as you can and keep all your equipment clean. Definitely. It's one of those things that's, that's easier said than done though, right? Sometimes it's easy to, at least I, I occasionally find myself tempted to try to cut some corners when it comes to that type of thing, because, you know, especially later in the season, you've been being obsessive about scent control for months and months now. But, but like you said, it's just so important. You have to pay attention to those details, right? Yeah, I, I think so. And I mean, but I will tell you this, you know, the right wind is the right wind. I mean, you know, and that's why you hear the stories of people killing deer, smoking cigarettes, and, you know, a guy gets off work at the factory, walks out and pounds a 190, you know, with a shotgun or whatever. <laughs> I mean, it happens all the time, you know. Um, but I, I do believe that, you know, if you throw, you, if you hunt the wind right, you can get away with more. If you have your stand set up in those situations where a lot of other deer aren't going to nail you and, you know, you could hunt however you wanted as long as the wind's right, you know, and it ain't swirling and the thermals are good and you're not hunting. You know, there's so many factors. I mean, you could talk for three days about this. <laughs> true, true. I mean, you really could. I mean, I, guess... I even amaze myself sometimes at the things that come up into my mind when I'm being asked that I always forget that I'm even thinking about, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's the truth. I guess that's part of the fun of it, right? Is there's there's so many different aspects of this to to obsess over and think about. Um, it definitely keeps me and Dan up late at night thinking about these things all year. So glad to know yeah, we're, we're not yeah. the only ones. <laughs> yeah, for I sure. got a I got a question about when it's time to make your move. Are are you identifying a buck? You you know that he's in the area and you know he's working a particular field edge or or coming through a, a certain trail, are you setting up an observation stand first or are you going right in because you have a gut feeling or you have hard evidence that this buck is going to be coming through this particular area? Yeah, well, I'm big on, you know, I mean, if I can use observation stands, you know, at a distance like before season or like say, for instance, say I go to a farm, like my lease in Illinois that I just picked up last year, you know, um, and this is a funny story because like the guy was trying to lease this farm out and nobody wanted it because it was too thick. I never heard of such a thing <laughs> in my own mind, you know, Seriously. um, so when the guy told me that I was on the road, you know, I looked at the aerial and then I, I went out there and I leased it, you know, because, um, I like thick. I mean, and I know that that's what, big deer like you know they like to be alone and they like thick and you know pretty timber doesn't hold bucks you know it'll have deer but it doesn't hold big deer you know um and so in that aspect the very first time that i went out there to hunt you know in the fall i'd ran cameras and had good information knew what kind of bucks was on it and it's funny so there was two booners on this farm Jeez. because it was so thick and they could, they could get away from each other. You know, they, they could bed each end of this one picket and they didn't have to look at each other. And so it worked for them and nobody else would really mess with it because it was so thick. So it was hard for them to, you know, hunt it. <clears throat> and, but anyways, you know, so for that instance, I did set up an observatory stand because I'd never hunted the farm. So I wanted to know how the deer in general moved on this farm you know, from one side of the farm to the other, how did they get there? How did they use these tree lines? You know, and day number four, I smacked a 174. So can you, can you 
share with us a little bit more about what you saw that put you in position to, to shoot that buck? So you set up an observation well, stand. What happened to get you there to where that 170 was? Yeah, well, I mean, it just, I had a good idea from running trail cameras where he was at anyways, and just the lay of the land and, you know, where there was a nice transition from open timber to the thick timber um, really made it appealing to me. Um, but from an observation point, you know, from the one area where I could watch the fields a little bit, I did see, you know, I could tell where the does were coming from and I could see, seem to tell where the bucks like to be. Well, you know, as pre-rod gets around, you know, where that's going to switch around and the bucks are going to go to the does. So, um, you know, I got in that transition, that, that funnel, what I call a travel corridor from the buck area to the doe area. And I set up and I waited for the right wind and, you know, the first time with the right wind, we killed him. It's awesome when it works out that way, isn't it? Yeah, when it does, it doesn't always, but, right. you know. But I, I also feel that, you know, if, if God's, if you're meant to kill that deer, it's going to happen, no matter what you do wrong or whatever. But if God doesn't want you to kill that deer, no matter how hard you try, you're not going to kill it. Because I've encountered that so many times, you know, biggest deer I ever hunted in my life, it just wasn't meant to be. I had a 215-inch deer three times within 50 yards of me on hard hunted ground and I could not get an arrow to that deer. I just wasn't meant to kill it. Jeez. I cannot imagine how frustrating that must've been. It, it was, but you know, it tore me apart, but, uh, I just had to accept it. And I finally gave up on that deer the next year and realized, you know, I, I, I'd lost some ground where I was trying to hunt it and things. And, you know, it got, it got smashed first day of gun season from a guy doing a deer drive. You know, they seen it from the road, and they walk up in the woods, and it got pushed to him, and he killed it. Wow. So it, that's just how, you know, I mean, it just was not meant for me to kill that deer. I mean, because I did everything I could do to get myself on that deer, and I did. Three different times in daylight, the 215-inch monarch, you know. But I just well, I wasn't going to take the bad shot, and, you know, it just, I passed the deer when he was 160s. Wow. You know, it's just one of those things. But, you know, I still believe that, you know, you can really do a lot of things to put yourself in the right driver's seat to make it happen. Right. How many how many times did you change your stand location for that for that buck that you ended up not shooting? Three times. Three times. So in three days. I moved you on moved in three different stand. times. Gotcha. Are, are you running and gunning or like a run and gun setup where you, you pack in? Well, if you're talking about that biggest deer, are you talking about the deer I killed this past year? Are you talking about the big deer I didn't kill? Uh, in general. I mean, yeah. when you, well, when you go I mean, in it and, depends. Like that big deer, I hunted that deer harder than any deer. I literally almost hunted that deer every day. I mean, literally. You know, that I had any, any time I had the right wind, I'd hunt that deer because he didn't live on the farm I could hunt. And I knew I had to be there if I was going to catch the one time that he was going to walk through there, you know. And it just so happened that three different times I was able to get on him, but I just couldn't get him close enough. And I do believe I was going to kill him the last night, that I, the last time I had him, which was on New Year's Day. But a neighbor ended up um, coming down through the woods and messing things up, and I, I just couldn't get him. So... He, he shrunk down and he took off. But I think that was the night I was actually, I thought I was going to get a shot. Well, then it just wasn't meant to be and it didn't happen. So, um, but you know, there's times I'm real aggressive and I'm moving on deer, you know, um, 
especially when you're out of state and you only got so many days to make it happen. You know, you got nothing to lose. You know, you got to move. You got to hunt the fresh sign. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard of Andre, you know, the Eastern Lone Wolf. I mean, he is a very aggressive hunter. You know, he is, his style is way different than some people's. You know, um, Andre does things that most people like me would crawl under the couch and go, why are you doing that? You know, but it works for him. You know, uh, I mean, his bump and dump tactic where he actually literally goes into the thickets and bumps yeah. those deer out. And then he sets up and hunts it the next morning early and catches them coming back. And it's worked for him. Yeah. You know, um, I think a lot of that depends too, though, on what areas you're hunting and what them deer are used to experiencing. You know, um, I think if you're in a very hard hunted area, you can't do that very often. You know, if you're in an area that the deer, you know, haven't been pressured so much, you can get away with that a little more and those deer are going to come back to their bedding areas and not feel so, so bad about it, you know, but, uh, you know, there's different tags. Sometimes you just got to feel the deer out. You know, you just got to know that deer's personality and how he reacts to things. How how many times do you need to see a buck do something before you change your strategy to take advantage of it? So I'm I'm thinking of like a specific instance, you know, that I had recently where, you know, I hung a new stand, went in there and hunted, and I saw a mature buck that I wanted to shoot, but he came out, you know, hundred hundred yards away from where I wanted him to. So then that next day I was like, okay, I know he came out there. Do I move my stand to be there because that's where it was last night? Or do I wait one more night to determine if that's a pattern or if he's going to, you know, maybe he would have been right by my stand if I would have stayed there. How, how do you make that decision? Do you move right away or do you wait and, and try to learn a little more? Well, a lot of time it's time factor too. But first thing I try to do is figure out, okay, well, what, why did he come out down there instead of right here? You know, so then you look at the wind, you look at the different factors and you try to figure out, okay, is he betting somewhere different than I thought, or is he betting in that area? And the wind was right for him to come into the field there, and so he felt good about it. Um, did you see a lot more deer come out in that spot with him than where you were at? Um, you know, things like that. I mean, that's kind of the factors. I, you know, There's really no right answer for that. Yeah. But... You know, I mean, I, I will move eventually if it's not panning out. And sometimes I may just go ahead and put a stand there anyways, leave the one I already had and put one in that position to be able to take advantage of that wind again. Because say, you know, a lot of times I'll base it on the movement that I saw, you know I mean? Cause you never know. It might've just been a smelly doe that brought him out in that corner that night, you know? Right. Um, but then I also look at, okay, why did I have to stand where I had it the very first time? You know, you obviously put that stand there for a reason, and so then you have to depict, well, had you seen him there before, or was it a new farm when you just set up on a field and you saw a consistent deer movement, you know, in one area? Well, then I definitely moved, you know. Yeah. I want to take a step back to something you kind of touched on a little bit ago when you were talking about, um, I can't remember how we got there, but you mentioned, like, during the late season, lots of times with your clients specifically, you won't even have them hunt in the mornings. Um, cause, cause they'll already be back to bed. Can you, can you share with me a little bit more about your thoughts on morning hunts in general throughout the season? Because at least me and Dan talk about this a lot and I tend to shy away from morning hunts in the early season and the late season. Um, what's your philosophy on morning hunts at different times in the year? Yeah, well, that's pretty much my philosophy. I mean, you know, um, early season, that's very hard. I feel, I'm not saying you can't, 
but I just feel that you're really lessening your chances of a particular deer. Now, can you kill deer in the mornings on acorn flats in the timber? Yeah, you sure can, you know, but you got to figure out how you're getting in there and how you're getting out of there, you know, and that's where a lot of people don't understand that, yeah, I mean, it may not be affecting the general deer population, but what it is affecting is the deer that they ultimately want to shoot, you know. Um, if you're lucky enough and you get in there and you killed it the first time in and you knew the deer well enough, well, that's different. But um, the more times you're traipsing in there in the mornings or hunting field edges in the mornings, I mean, you're you're busting those deer out of those fields in the mornings even going in there, you know, um, that time of year. So I typically... I typically do not hunt mornings until about the 23rd, 20th, 20th of October. If the deer is even telling me that I can't hunt him at that time. Yeah. So, so the late season's the same. Okay. So you, you got me thinking about something else when you mentioned that October 20th time frame, give or take there's, you know, there's this, uh, popular buzzword, the October lull. Do you, do you believe in the October lull? Do you have a certain way that you hunt during that mid-October time frame, or do you just stay away completely? Well, I mean, I got I hunt when I got time to hunt, you know, and if the deer's telling me I can hunt him, I'm going to hunt him. Um, you know, I do think that deer kind of take a little siesta to a degree, you know, especially if it's really hot weather. You know, they're not going to move the greatest, you know, but that's when you really have to be tuned in on your deer and what they're doing. You know, being an outfitter, I got to produce deer all the time for these guys, you know. And um, so, and it doesn't always work. I mean, it really don't. You know, sometimes we struggle and we're, you know, get frustrated and, you know. So, it's one of those things where, you know, the guys tend to generally listen to me then. They start figuring out that, you know, we kind of do know what we're talking about instead of trying to hunt mornings and, you know, certain times of the year. Uh, because the deer movement generally becomes good. It may be the last half hour of daylight, but they're going to see a lot of deer, you know. Um, so, but I do believe that there is a little bit of a October law, you know, especially if the weather's really hot and stagnant, you know, that, that can affect them big time. But I also think that deer move a little better than some people think. You know, everybody wants to hunt that Halloween, November. I really like, I love that. 23rd uh, I've killed two booners on October 23rd wow why do you think that that time frame is so good for you because I just I think them bucks are they're just getting I don't know how you say it but they're they can just feel it I guess I think they just start to feel bucky you know their testosterone is getting to that level where they know that you know they're just feeling a little more dominant they're rubbing harder they're really marking their territories um, you know, and I mean, the big, big bucks seem to be the last ones to really partake of the breeding and start the chase phase. And, but they're also the last ones to stop, you know, that's why, you know, Thanksgiving day and in November, you're driving home from grandma's and you see a 190 inch slob standing in the middle of a field, you know, by a house, you know, just walking across her like he's lovesick, mm-hmm. you know, because they're just, that's what they do. You know, they, they're, they don't want to stop, you know, it's harder to get them going. So you feel that they're, they're the, the big mature bucks are, don't go and seek out the very first doe that's hot. 
Well, say, I'm not like, going to say that they're, I mean, if they know where there is one, I'm not going to say they're not, that they won't go after them, but I just don't feel that they do it in a manner of where all these year and a half and two and a half year old bucks running all over like mad and everybody thinks the ruts, everybody's thinking the ruts on, you know, because you see it all the time where these guys are, you know, I saw six bucks today. Well, every one of them was, you know, a spiker to 110, you know, to 100 inch deer running wild, you know, and everybody's thinking the ruts in. Well, right. you know, and I mean, I'm not trying to be a smart, but when I say that, I'm just saying, you know, my experience as an outfitter and hunting and just the crowd of people that I talk to that are successful big deer killers, you know, we all agree. I mean, it's those bucks don't move, you know, it's still early, you know, those bigger ones, you know, they'll start roaming, but you just don't seem to see them, you know, but where I catch them like killing that deer last year on the 27th, you know, I caught him in his core area though, you know, and I was just inside the timber in a good funnel between bedding and doe bedding between his bedding area and the doe bedding area. That's where I caught him. So do you think that, you know, we always talk about when to take your vacation and a lot, a lot of guys are taking it the first or the second week of November. And you're saying, you like the last weekend in the last weekend in October and the third weekend in November. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm going by size of deer now too. I mean, you're not going to see near the amount of deer, you know, and that's where it's hard for guys. So if they, if they want to be in action and have their chances, obviously you got a better chance at shooting a decent buck when the run is really kicking, you know, cause you're just going to see more deer. And you, you know, and them big slobs get shot at that time of year. I'm not saying they don't, you know, but what I find hunting a lot with this silly country and things, I encounter too many times the deer that I really wanted to kill is tied up with that doe because them does seek those bucks out. People don't think that, but them does in this hilly country where I live, the does look for the big bucks. They know where the mature dominant buck is at and they go to him. And sometimes he never has to leave that hollow. Hmm. So... When you are, when we are into that rut phase, you know, let's say somewhere in November for a lot of us here in the Midwest, at least, how do you go about trying to get on that most mature buck in the area? Because I know, like you mentioned, there's other times of the year that might be better to get a hold of him. Um, how do you best take advantage of that time? If you ha- if that's when you're hunting, what do you do to try to find that mature buck that's this hold up somewhere? Well, I don't. What I try to do, honestly, is I'll either hunt. I hunt thick. You know, if I got to be in the timber. I mean, because what happens is a lot of times the does quit going to the opening. They quit going to food because they're going to get harassed by every buck in the country. And they know it, you know, and I don't know if you've noticed that, but they start backing off and mm-hmm. going to those food sources and making big appearances. Um, <laughs> so a lot of times what I'll do then is I have to find ways if I'm out of state or even here, if I'm crunch time, I'll get in deep and I'll hunt those thick spots where I know those bucks bed. Or where I know, because a lot of times he'll bring them back to his bed, um, you know, or I'll try to hunt the doe bedding areas where I'm going to try to catch him looking for that doe and cruising, you know, cruising that area for a hot doe in his core. Gotcha. It's all about get, getting in there where, where most other guys don't want to go, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying guys won't go in there. It's just a matter of doing it in the right way, you know, and I'll hunt the downwind sides of those areas. I don't dig right in the middle of it. I hunt the outside edge 
you know, I hunt that transition zone on the downwind side, <clears throat> you know, um, because, you know, big fat bucks are lazy. You know, they'll get in the thick stuff and root them does out, but he's not going to do it till he smells her in there. Because, I mean, they can smell a trillion times better than a human, you know, and what they can smell. I mean, they can smell a hot doe so far away, it's ridiculous, you know. And so them just cruising the downwind side of a thicket, that's why a lot of times you'll see them in the hill country, they just run half hillside, and they'll check every trail along that hillside that comes off the ridge or up the ridge. It goes up to it, and they're just running hillside, checking trail to trail to trail until they hit the track that's hot. And then all of a sudden you'll see them shoot down or up, whichever way they felt she went. Yeah. Uh, speaking of speaking of hillsides and stuff, given the fact that you live in hilly country and hunt in a lot of areas like that, um, are there any specific types of terrain features like that or in addition to that that you found deer you know, behave consistently around or use in a certain way? Can you elaborate on any of those types of types of features? You mean as far as like in the hills or just any, ter- you know? Yeah, I mean. You mean any kind of. It could be any. Yeah. Well, I mean, like in the hills, I know, I, I notice a lot the bucks bed. You know, you'll get a lot of bucks that bed, you know, three quarters of the way up. You know, they bed in a manner to where they can watch below them and get the wind in their backs. Mm-hmm. You know, Um and, and, you know, and you'll see that even in a little more open timber. They'll bed in those areas if they got a log or a root ball that's popped up that they can, because they have access of escape, you know, they can get away because um, they can see you coming from a long ways or they can smell you from a long ways. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, I notice it just seems to me that, that, you know, I'll catch big bucks up on the ridge and I like to hunt ridges because I can keep my wind consistent, you know, um, but I'll catch a lot of those deer up in those spots, you know, late mornings, you know, when I am hunting mornings, it seems like that's when I'll catch those bucks in those areas is coming back up into those spots. Um, you know, in the evenings, I typically will try to hunt a little lower, you know, um, catching them coming down to the food sources, you know, or to a food source and, you know, looking for does, catching them on those doe trails, you know, if they're smelling for does. Okay. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. But I mean, transition is a major factor. I mean, that, that's one thing that if people learn to pick out transition zones. And what I mean by transition, it could be, you know, small timber to big timber, thick brush to medium sized timber, um, you know, swamp to hardwoods, CRP to, you know, woods, any of those areas, you're going to find buck tracks, you know, and those are good places to, try to scout from this especially this time of year you know yeah like to, you said just backtrack and just see what deer are doing yeah it's it's all about that edge right just like you just like mm-hmm. you mentioned with uh with your yeah. upcoming show um so with i guess i am as i'm as you're talking about some of these different places that you're setting up and i got to thinking about your actual setup do you have any typical things you always do when you set up a tree stand is there a certain height or certain way you like to face your stand um any anything specific about how you actually get your your stand setups up that you like to share uh i'm big on cover you know i mean i'm not necessarily a big believer in that you got to be high i'm i'm more a believer in your background has to be you have to be hidden um you know i've killed you know, I saw my partner, Tim Woods, shoot a deer seven feet off the ground. We was in a little cedar tree, 
And, I mean, we literally could almost, there was times we could have kicked the dough in the face, I think. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's all about cover in my mind, you know, being hidden. Yes, the higher you are, you can get a little better wind consistency or maybe get away with something. But, like I said, we try to hunt the wind anyways, and so we're not so much worried about that. We try to get hidden, especially when you got two guys in the tree and you're running cameras. Yeah, that makes things... So wherever I can get into the cover and into a crotch and feel hidden, you know, and I try to place my stand where I don't have to do a bunch of moving to get the shot, if possible. Um, You know, I... I, Sometimes you have to pick just a straight pole-type tree, which, you know, is not my favorite by no means, but um, sometimes you have to. That's all you got. But um, I really like to pick, you know, limmy, forky-type trees, you know, trees that are holding their leaves if they're in a good spot. You know, a lot of your white oaks and beech will be holding their leaves late in the year. Scarlet oak, those are good trees to pick if you have them. Interesting. Yeah, I I love hearing about all this, the different specific details like that. Once you, it definitely seems like there's patterns that emerge with, with different types of hunters. But when it comes right down to it, covers is probably that most important thing. If you can make sure you're not getting spotted in the tree, you can uh, you can get away with some things that maybe other things that maybe aren't perfect. So. Yeah, I agree. Dan, Dan over there, I know you probably need to bounce soon. Do you have any final question for Ben before we wrap things up? Anything that's still on your mind? Well, like he said, I, I have probably 37,000 more questions I'd like to ask, but uh, we don't have time time for that. One question I always ask people, though, is what do you feel, what's one thing that sticks out in your head that most hunters do wrong when going after a big buck? Boy, that's a tough one there. I mean, you know, I I think sometimes hunting too much, I think, you know, um, that's one thing I've taught myself over the years is hunt smarter, not harder. Yeah. Um, you know, and it all depends on the, the deer. You know, if you know that that deer isn't living on you and the only time you're going to get him is if he's walking through you on your property, then maybe you have to hunt harder than normal, you know. Um, but if you're, if you think you can be in that deer's roundhouse, then I think you have to play your cards right and you wait for the movement to be correct, you know, um, whether it be a, a weather front or a high pressure system or the right wind or the correct moon, you know, uh, <clears throat> a rising moon, you know, in the fall, um, you know, when you were driving down the road and you see that moon in the sky, you know, two, three o'clock in the afternoon already starting to rise. Those are great days to be in the stand, but if the weather coincides with it, it makes it a lot better, you know, I mean, um, and same with the late falling moon in the morning, you know, mornings hunt, morning hunts are really good catching deer coming back to bed later from a food source or, you know, staging areas when that moon is falling because they've just, they're up feeding again. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more on that, on that basic principle. I think it, hunting less will actually lead to you killing more. If you're, especially if you're targeting these mature bucks, it really is about quality over quantity. Um, but that's a, it's a hard pill to swallow, right? Cause people want, yeah, to hunt. it is. <laughs> and that's what I tell people. Look, I think if you, if you just really love to be out there and you love to hunt and there's nothing wrong with that, you know, I love to be out there and enjoy Mother Nature and 
you know, and just watch deer in general, but I'll sit certain spots for that. You know, I'm going to go hunt a farm that I don't care about or that I'm not worried about, you know, trying to kill the biggest deer on that farm. You know, I'm either trying to harvest a doe or, you know, something like that, or just in general be in the woods watching deer movement. Um, you know, but I'm not going to consistently go pounding into the area that I'm trying to kill 190-inch deer that the neighbors are trying to kill also, and I'm not going to do anything in my power that's going to push him to somebody else before I get the chance at him, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 the trick is figuring out where that fine line is that you can walk where you can hunt enough to have the chance for success, but not so much that you blow them out of the country or, or lose that yeah, chance. Yeah, and I... I think that's where people, if they pay attention, you know, if they learn how to run the trail cameras correctly and, you know, they're not blowing into the timber and they're they're smart enough to understand that the information and the data they're collecting from the trail cameras on the edges or the scrapes or the food sources, you piece that part of the puzzle together. You know, you look at the times that those pictures were taken. You know, if you're, if, if those deer aren't hitting your food source till an hour or two hours after dark, consistently well they're betting a lot farther away than you probably have access to you know so you either got two choices you either got to find get access to where they're at or you got to hunt deeper on your property and find a way to get in there to catch them coming to that food source before they before it gets dark you know um but if you know if it's real late then you're you know you got a big battle against you and you're going to have to wait till the rut you know, or that pre-rut time when those bucks are really antsy then, then that's when you can somewhat catch those deer in an unpredictable spot, you know, when they're normally not there. You know, if they start hitting those scrapes on your farm and hitting those food sources, cruising around looking for does and that pre-rut at a, at a better time, getting closer to, you know, the end of day darkness or daylight, then you can somewhat put it together. Yeah, I think something you mentioned there. Um, relates to, I think I hear from so many guys who talk about, I've got all these pictures of big bucks on my trail camera, even during the season, but you know, I can never get, I never see them. And when you talk to them, it's because it's a situation like, well, in some cases, like you just mentioned, where all these pictures are at midnight or one o'clock, you know, four or five, six hours after daylight, before daylight the next day. And these deer, like you mentioned, are probably, you know, far, far away. They're not, they're not living on that farm. So there's guys that are thinking that they just keep hunting over and over and over that magically one day this deer is going to appear during daylight right where they've been sitting. Uh, But in a lot of cases, either they are pressuring the deer so much that he's become nocturnal or he only shows up on your property three hours after dark because he's not living there. And so to your point, you need to wait until the rut when maybe there's a better chance of him cruising through during daylight. So it's, it's all about trying to put those pieces of the puzzle together and figuring out how you read that intel and how that fits into what your strategy should be, it seems like. Yeah, you know, I agree. And, I mean, you know, it, it's hard to explain. And sometimes those deer are on that property. It's just that they may be so pressured that they know that they're not going to move till it's good and dark. Yeah. You know, um, so. Yeah. Yep, that's definitely a situation you don't want to be in, but uh, many people find themselves in that for sure. Uh, so, so I want to I want to throw one more question at you, Ben. Um, at least for me, every season, no matter you know, no matter how well the previous season went for me, every year there's always at least one thing 
that I go into the next year thinking that I want to improve on. I, I always manage to find something that I've done not quite the way I wanted to. So so this year, there's there's a couple things in my mind that I want to do differently this season to try to become just a little bit more successful. Is there anything for you this year that you want to try to specifically improve on or fix for the 2016 season that you can think of? Um, You know, I always I always want to be a better shot, you know. I mean, I so I, I always try to make sure I practice enough and, you know, put myself in those positions. And I'll tell you something that's really made a big difference for me is uh, the HHA optimizer site, single pin adjustable. Um, that site has changed how I shoot, especially as I'm getting older. My eyes are getting a little, you know, less than what they were. You know, I'm 41 now and, you know, I don't see like I did when I was 20, <clears throat> but that site has really, that single pin site has really changed the game for me. Um, you know, and I really did, I had a great success this year shooting deer with that. And so, you know, and I'd never was a believer in those kind of sites until I tried it. Hmm. And, uh, it really, so I, you know, I want to fine tune that, you know, a little bit this year, uh, getting better, you know, with that. And, uh, you know, I think just in general, as you get older, you get calmer and you start paying a little more attention to things and, you know, you just realize where you can always improve and it's it's always you know you can maybe find better ground you can maybe you know hunt smarter you know just different things like that um you know getting my kids involved more as they get older you know is a a key factor that's awesome yeah i think there's at least for me there's never a shortage of different little areas i want to tweak something or explore something a little bit differently or, or adjust what i do it's seems to be an endless, a never-ending puzzle that we're always trying to figure out. Yeah, it, it's, but it just seems to always go back to the basics, you know. Very true. It, it just really does. You know, it's funny how, I mean, I can remember shooting my first deer years ago with a aluminum arrow that was the size of a baseball bat, seemed like, and, <laughs> you know, a Kmart triple-headed broadhead or, you know, just crazy stuff. And, you know, it's just, you know, and, and they work. It's just a matter of, you know, we've gotten so high tech anymore that sometimes we lose sight of just the simple things that are effective. Very true. Very true. So, so Ben, this has been, this has been super interesting. I, like Dan said a couple of minutes ago, we could probably sit here and talk to you for three more days. Um, but we do need to wrap it up. So I know you mentioned a little while ago, Whitetail Edge is this new web show you've got going on. Do you want to, can you tell us anything more about what, what that is, when we should expect to see more from it, where we can find it? Yeah, well, you'll be uh, seeing it here in the next couple of weeks. Um, we have a website called whitetailedge.com, and it's, it's actually going to be aired um, through Woodbury Outfitters, which is a store out of Coshocton, Ohio. He has a big online uh, web sales has three different locations for stores. Um, and you know, he's basically wants to be the whitetail authority for, you know, your shopping needs, you know? Um, and as this gets going, you know, we're going to carry the products, you know, we already carry, he carries everything already, but he wants to, you know, we kind of want to have our own line of specific things that we carry, you know, and right now we're sponsored by wicked tree gear, uh, redneck blinds, HHA sports, um, Rocky boots, you know, um, so just different things like that, big time, which, you know, here in Ohio, you can supplemental feed deer. And, uh, I was just introduced to big time last year and the results were amazing to me as far as, 
you know, what it can do for your deer herd, especially this time of year after they're shedding. Awesome. Awesome. So you said whitetailedge.com? Yeah, whitetailedge.com. We have video blogs. You can go to woodburyoutfitters.com, too, and you can see some things there. But uh, we have a Facebook page, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, so is Tim Woods, which he's, you know, my other main guy that's going to be a part of it. And then I got a couple other buddies that are a part of it and my wife. So, um, but yeah, I mean, we're just basically going to be killing deer and trying to show people what we do and, you know, hopefully it's entertaining and informative like it has been tonight for you guys. Hopefully, yeah, you know, definitely, definitely uh, a little different twist. You know, web shows are different. They're not 30 minute shows, you know, they're going to be eight to 12 minutes but hopefully it's pretty darn entertaining. Awesome. You know. I'm excited to check them out. I know uh, I've enjoyed your videos in the past with the juries, so I'm sure this will be this will be great too. So we'll make sure to link to the website and your Facebook page and, and various other social media uh, links that you mentioned there, and uh, we'll have that up on the blog post for for this episode. So, Ben, thank yeah, you. And we, we also have Wicked Ridge Outfitters, so you can go there too, find us, wickedridgeoutfitters.com. That's my outfitting business. And then uh, the hunt, I was just telling you about the high and tight deer, that 184 inch this year. That's actually on Bone Collector, which it showed already in January, but it'll show again two more times this season, I think. So if people uh, want to watch Bone Collector, the Ohio show, they'll be able to see that. Oh, nice. Perfect. That would be cool. How, how big was that one again? 183 and like 3.8 or something. Jeez. Wow. Yeah, we'll definitely want to check that out. So... This has been great, Ben. I really appreciate you joining us. So, so thank you so much, and good luck this next yeah. season. Okay, buddy. You have a good night. Thanks for All having right. me. You too, Ben. All right, so there you go. Interesting stuff, don't you think? 94 episodes in, and I got to say, I still haven't heard from a single guest yet who doesn't at least have some little unique angle or slightly different way to go about things. And uh, I love that. I love that every time we talk to someone, we can learn something new. And, and everybody's got a slightly different way of going about it. So there, there certainly are a lot of different ways to skin this cat. And I suppose that's part of what makes all this so much fun. There's lots and lots to learn. No doubt about that. So with that all said, before we wrap this up, we do need to give a big thank you to our partners who help make the Wired to Hunt podcast possible. So, big thank you to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonix, Carbon Express, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. Please help the Wired to Hunt podcast by supporting these companies and letting them know that you're enjoying the show. So finally, and most importantly, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate you tuning in and spending a little bit of time with us. So, until next time, have a great week, good luck shed hunting, and stay Wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. 
They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins.